dig within the recesses of your soul and ponder these vital questions which resonate with the essence of Psalm 86. What is your comprehension of God's goodness, that benevolent attribute of God that courses through the very fabric of our existence? Does the occasional amnesia of His goodness hinder you from seeking refuge in His boundless mercy through prayer? Reflect upon God's grace, His undeserved favor, His kindness towards us in Christ. Has your deficient understanding or perhaps your wavering faith prevented you from turning to Him in prayer, acknowledging your utter dependence upon His gracious hand? Do you recognize your profound need for divine mercy? Is your understanding crystal clear? Or has it been clouded by self-deception or an inflated self-view, feeble comprehension of your inability that has shrouded your desperate need for God's mercy? Has this obscured your prayer life, making it ineffective and stagnant? Do you recognize your lack of wisdom, your finite understanding, and thus acknowledge your minute-by-minute utter dependence upon the Lord for guidance? Or do the illusory shackles of self-sufficiency blind you to the wealth of wisdom that we find within God's Word that we lay hold of through prayer. Reflect upon your challenges, your adversaries, your trials, your difficulties. Do you perceive yourself as the sole architect of deliverance, relying upon your own boundless strength and resources? Or when the storms of life rage, do you sincerely plead as a beggar for protection, for healing, for provision, for divine intervention? Or do these supplications remain dormant, drowned out by self-reliance? These questions, my friends, serves as a mirror to your soul reflecting the health of your spiritual well-being. Let them penetrate the depths of your being as we consider the prayer of David in Psalm 86, not just seeking answers, but truly transformation, an awakening to our desperate need, our profound reliance upon God's mercy. That's why we need Psalm 86. That's why we need to learn from David's example. And so let's embark on this journey into the heart of Psalm 86, a prayer of David, a cry from the soul, a timeless conversation between a slave and his merciful master. It's a psalm that resonates with the raw honesty of human desperation and the unwavering hope found within a merciful and gracious God. Picture David, this shepherd king of Israel, pouring out his heart in prayer. What brought him to his knees? What sustained him through trials and threats and the relentless pursuit of many enemies? This morning, will be drawn into this intimate, heartfelt plea of King David, considering not just his requests, but the very essence of his relationship with God, a God who is rich in mercy. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 86, and let's discover the power of prayer that is steeped within the mercy of God. The prayer of David reads from Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. 
Keep my soul, for I am a holy one. O you, my God, save your slave who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I call all day long. Make glad the soul of your slave, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my distress, I call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Yahweh. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness towards me is great, and you have delivered my soul from Sheol below. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of ruthless men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God compassionate and gracious." slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O oh, grant your strength to your slave and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. So reads the Word of God. Because David knew that God is good and gracious and he is able to do wondrous deeds, David prays for deliverance, for protection, deliverance from his enemies, these proud oppressors, asking for a sign, a sign of God's favor that will put his enemies to shame and that will enable him to experience joy gladness of soul. In Psalm 86, we see four key aspects that profoundly shaped David's heart. His, it shaped his heartfelt prayer to God. And these four key aspects that so shaped David's prayer, they cause you and I to understand our profound need, our utter dependence upon God for mercy. Four key aspects that profoundly shape David's heartfelt prayer so that you will understand your complete dependence upon God for everything. In the midst of our achievements and failures, amid the clamor of our triumphs and defeats, one resounding truth echoes through the ages, the unrelenting human need for mercy. God's mercy like a boundless ocean, stretches beyond the horizon of our understanding. It is infinite in its understanding. And it's our deficient understanding of God's mercy that keeps us from pleading with Him for mercy. God's mercy is a refuge for the broken, a sanctuary for the contrite a lifeline for those drowning in the sea of sin and inadequacy. Pride, self-sufficiency, and faithlessness, they will blind us of our need for mercy. But when you grasp the depths of God's mercy, then likewise you'll come to behold His compassion, His grace, His kindness, His love. I plead with you this morning to lay aside the pretense of self-sufficiency and with humble hearts apply your minds to the study of God's mercy. 
join me, not just as a passive spectator, but as a seeker yearning to comprehend the profound significance and the need for God's mercy in our lives. As you can see from this psalm, the title is A Prayer of David. And in fact, it's the only psalm written by David in this third book of the Psalter. It's David's prayer for mercy based upon the character of God. A psalm which is filled with many petitions, many requests. There's at least 15 petitions throughout this psalm. But they're all variants of this one plea, mercy. I need God's mercy. God's mercy is the theme found throughout this psalm. It's stated explicitly in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 16. In verse 3 it says, Be gracious to me, or some translations say, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for to you I call all day long. Verse 6 reads, Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. Now, the word translated supplications is a compound word in Hebrew, tahinu. Tahinu is the Hebrew word, which is translated, my plea for mercy. That's a literal translation, my plea for mercy. Hanu is mercy. Tahinu, my plea for mercy. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. And that Hebrew word gracious is hanu, mercy. Be merciful to me. Oh, grant your strength to your slave and save the son of your maidservant. Nothing is more important for sinful, weak, inadequate men and women like you and me than experiencing God's mercy firsthand. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it best. He says, the best of men need mercy and appeal to mercy, yet to nothing else but mercy. Now, most of us, I think, would acknowledge our need for mercy, but do we live as if we need His mercy? I think many of us live as if we don't. Do you remember the magnificent speech praising mercy from William Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice? The speaker, Portia, who is the actor, acting as a lawyer in order to plead a case before the court of Venice, she says, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blessed him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest is the mightiest it becomes. The throned monarch better than his crown. Act 4, scene 1. Now these are certainly noble words, but in practice, most people don't seek nor give mercy. We want to be treated on the basis of our own merits. And what we demand from others is what we demand from God. But David was spiritually wiser than we are. He knew that he needed mercy, not just due, and so he pleaded for mercy. The outline of the psalm is fairly straightforward. It consists of a lament, a cry, a plea in verses 1 through 7, and then a praise in verses 8 through 10, a prayer in verses 11 through 13, and then one final petition in verses, or several final petitions in verses 14 through 17. And yet, each of these elements overlap within the psalm and into really breaking down into four sections, four reasons. And I would argue that the best way for us to study this psalm is to focus on its most important ideas. And we see four main ideas here. Firstly, we see David's relationship with God. Secondly, David's requests of God. Thirdly, David's reasons to God. And then fourth and finally, David's remembrance of God. Four key aspects that profoundly shape David's heartfelt prayer so that you will understand your utter need to depend upon God for everything. We begin with David's relationship with God. David's relationship with God. Israel's king. 
He doesn't begin his prayer arguing that God owes him anything. Now, on the contrary, we see he begins in verse 1 affirming that he is afflicted and needy. Some translations say poor and needy. Most of us have encouraged moments when the weight of affliction leaves us pleading for God's help. Help, O oh God. But God is not some magical genie. He's not David's personal genie who answers to his every command. On the contrary, David cries out to God and he affirms in verse 2 that he is God's slave who trusts in the Lord, asking his master for deliverance. Please save me, my master, my Lord. David approaches God as a beggar, one who is looking to God for help. What a, so contrary to the age in which we live in that promotes self-sufficiency and self-determination. Highly praised, highly honored. And yet you have Israel's king, the king of Israel, who understands that he is nothing more than a servant. In fact, he is nothing more than a slave of God, utterly dependent upon his master for everything. He understands his great need. And he is in need, as you can see in verse 7. He speaks of being in distress. In verse 14, he explains that arrogant men have risen up against him. They are attacking him. In verse 16, he once again refers to himself as a slave, God's slave, asking God, his master, for strength. Because his enemies, those who hate him, verse 17, they want to see him ashamed. How do you respond to opposition? Those that perhaps seek your shame within the workplace or within the community or in the neighborhood. Do you put on your boxing gloves and get ready for a fight? Or are you like David? Do you humble yourself and seek God's help? Or do you appeal to him on the basis of perhaps your own rights, your own accomplishments? I mean, let's be honest. To confess that we are poor and needy, well, that's demeaning. To affirm that we are a servant, let alone a slave, well, that's humiliating. We want to be people who deserve something from God because of who we are. Don't, don't they know who I am? But in reality, what is it that we deserve? We all deserve hell. But God has shown us mercy in Christ by judging Him in our place as our substitutes. And now in Christ, we have indeed been regarded of somewhat of worth, of value, purely because of our union with Him. But not because we deserve it, but purely because God is a merciful God. The only reason why he has shown favor to us is because of his mercy, not because of anything that we have done or anyone that we are. That would only lead us to hell. David recognizes that it's only because God has been merciful to him that he has a relationship with God. And it's only because God has shown him mercy in the past that he can plead for mercy in the presence, protect Make glad, give joy, even in the midst of my affliction and my need. Do you have such a relationship with God? God has created you to enjoy an intimate, joyful, loving relationship with Him. But your sin has separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. But God, in His infinite mercy, provided a way of restoration. There is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ who entered this world, who lived a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness on your behalf, and yet laying down his life to pay sin's penalty in full on your behalf, and rising again on the third day, conquering sin and death and the evil one, providing forgiveness of sins and a reconciled relationship with God through him. There is no other way that you can be saved. And therein lies the invitation, not only to know about God, but to truly know Him, to experience abundant life in Him. This new life in Christ begins the moment that you repent, the moment you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, trusting in Him and His finished work on the cross as being the only way that you can be saved. 
This isn't merely an invitation. It's an opportunity to embrace the fullness of life that God has designed for each of you to enjoy in relationship with Him through Christ. To possess the privileged position of being a slave of the King of Kings. Do you remember the tax collector in Jesus' story? He knew that he was a sinner. And so he didn't come to God reminding God of his ethnic attainments, unlike the Pharisee. He stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast, a sign of genuine remorse and repentance. And he prayed, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus' judgment was that that man, rather than the other, that man, that sinful tax collector, went home justified, as opposed to the arrogant, self-sufficient, depending on his own works, Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can read that in Luke 18, that account. Who are those who receive mercy? It is those who ask God for it. Those who turn from their own self-sufficiency and trust in Jesus. In the words of the late preacher James Montgomery Boyce, Come, every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Don't delay. If a person believes that and comes to Jesus he or she will find that God is exactly as he says he is within his word. He or she will find him to be a merciful God who reaches out to save many through his son. But without a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ, your prayers will be ineffective, in many respects unheard. The only prayer that God will listen to is a plea for mercy to save. But once saved, it is the prayer of a righteous man or woman that avails much. And David was a righteous man. He wasn't a righteous man in and of himself. We know his horrible life of sin. But he was a man who was regarded as righteous, counted as righteous through his faith in God. In God, in, in God's promised salvation through the coming seed, the Messiah. And thus we see throughout the psalm, David makes many requests to God, trusting that his requests will avail much. This is the second key aspect of David's heartfelt prayer. It's David's requests of God. David's requests of God. David makes 15 requests. He asked God to hear and answer, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me. Verse 2, he asked God to guard and save, to keep my soul. Save your slave who trusts in you. Be gracious, verse 3, or be merciful to me. Verse 4, make glad the soul of your slave. And then again, hear and listen, verse 6. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplication or my plea for mercy. Verse 11, teach me your way and unite my heart to fear your name. Give me an undivided heart, O God. Verse 16, turn to me, be gracious or merciful to me. O grant your strength to your slave and save. Show me a sign for good, verse 17. And most of these requests have to do with his perilous circumstances. He was in great danger from the various enemies who were attacking him. But in the midst of these many requests for deliverance from his enemies, there's a remarkable pericope, a, a, an amazing stanza within his prayer. In verses 11 through 13, where David prays, God, teach me your way. Give me an undivided heart. Give me a, a heart that fears Yahweh. Unite my heart to fear you, O Yahweh. This is what sets David apart from you and I. 
when we pray, we're mostly concerned about deliverance, about help, about guidance, about things. But we're not nearly as concerned enough to grow in intimacy with God. We're not nearly concerned enough to be strengthened, helped, so that we can better serve the Lord with an undivided, a devoted heart. In other words, we want the blessings of salvation without the duties. We want prosperity and personal safety whilst we continue to do our own thing. David knew his heart, how prone to wander away from the God he loves. But he longed to walk along God's paths of righteousness. Even as we see his prayer in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me along the paths of righteousness. I seek to do your will above all else. David doesn't just give God a shopping list of requests. He goes on and even motivates his requests. He reasons with God. And this is the third aspect of David's heartfelt prayer. David's reasoning with God. David's reasoning with God. Once again, one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's great themes when writing or speaking upon prayer is that he would often say that we should learn to pray with arguments. Learn to pray with arguments. And what he means is really that we need to sharpen our thinking by, by learning to express the reasons for why we are asking what we are asking. The reasons as to why God should answer our prayer affirmatively. And if we can't think of any of the reasons why God should answer our prayers, then we're probably requesting, uh, probably our requests are wrong or misdirected and need to be revised and redirected. Notice how David buttresses his prayers with sound arguments. And it's easy to, to find them because there's an eightfold repetition of the word for, which means because. He begins with reasons first and foremost of who he is and of his need. And then as his prayer continues, he shifts his focus to God, and he then later reasons, and his reasons are based upon who God is, his great power and his grace. And so we see the first four reasons are based upon David and his need. The first is in verse 1, For I am afflicted and needy. His first reason is based upon his sad plight. He's not mighty. He's not self-sufficient. On the contrary, he's poor and needy. So if God will not help him, well, there's no real, found, there's no real help found anywhere else. This argument, of course, presupposes God's mercy. It's because God has been merciful to him that God will continue to help him in his state of affliction and need. Number two in verse two, for I am holy. I am a holy one. I am one who has been set apart. I am one who is devoted to you, Yahweh. The second reason why David appeals to God and, and motivates God, encourages God to hear his prayer is because he has a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. He has been made holy in God. God has entered into relationship with him. In other words, he is God's slave, and God is his master. A slave certainly has duties towards his master, toward God, but likewise, God also has duties towards his slave. David's very cognizant of this fact, and he calls out to God, calling him Adonai, seven times in the psalm. And Adonai is translated Lord, which is really just means master, master, Lord, master. David's third reason is in verse 3. For to you I call all day long. His third reason that God should answer is because he's asking God to do it. God, of course, is not obligated to answer. Even that is his grace. But David knows that God is a prayer-answering God. And so David asks God to take note of the fact that it is to him that he is praying. Fourthly, verse 4, For to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. 
The fourth reason is that David is calling to, on God and no one else. A pagan might have many gods and call upon all of them, which really just shows that he doesn't have confidence in even one of them. But David is praying to God only because he knows that it is only the one and only true God that can help him. The first four reasons are based upon David and his need. But then he gives another four reasons, which are are based upon God and God's character, his attributes, his perfections. In our time of need, we mustn't only confess our needs and our dependence upon the Lord, but we must also affirm, affirm who he is, affirm his promises, recall his character. The reason why David prays to God in the midst of his distress, verse 7, for you will answer me. Earlier in verse 1, he had asked God to hear him, to answer him, to incline his ear, take heed. But here he asserts his confidence. God will answer. In other words, he's praying because he knows that the prayer of a righteous man will prevail. It will accomplish much. A prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It is effective, as James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16. Prayer is not an empty exercise. God hears our prayers. God works through our prayers. He answers prayers. And this is David's confidence. But then why do we so often find ourselves frustrated by repeatedly falling into the same sin? Or wondering why progress just seems so slow? The answer might be the lack of prayer. We simply aren't praying. We're in work mode, do, 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 relying solely upon our strength and our resources. And although you may experience perhaps in those moments fleeting progress, it tends to be short-lived, fizzling out, eventually leaving you caught up in the same cycle of those same old patterns. But perhaps it's not the absence of prayer, but maybe the lack of fervent, faith-filled prayer. Are your prayers more of a religious ritual? This is something I must do. Tick, tick. Or is it a genuine, heart-to-heart conversation with God, knowing that He hears you, knowing that He is eager to respond and work through your prayers? Jesus often rebuked his disciples, perhaps his most often rebuke, O you of little faith. They lacked genuine faith in God's ability. And thus they were often, they often found themselves unable to serve him, unable to do what he commanded them to do. Because they would often attempt to do God's work in their own strength, in their own ability, and not in humble dependence upon God. Faith, as we know from Ephesians 2.8, is a gift. It's a gift from God. And so therefore, ask God to graciously gift you faith. Ask God to strengthen your faith, which is typically achieved through regularly feeding upon the Word of God. It's typically achieved through our faith being tested as God takes us through trials of various kinds, as James tells us in chapter 1, 2 through 4. The second reason that he bases The second reason why God should answer his prayer is based upon the character of God. In verse 10, David prays, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You are great and do wondrous deeds. Not only is God a prayer-answering God, but he's also one who is able to do. He possesses all strength, all power. And so God is pray- David is praying to the one who is great and all-powerful, omnipotent. God can do what David is requesting. This is his confidence. And many of the Psalms recount the wondrous deeds of God. Number three is found in verse 13. For your loving kindness towards me is great. This is the seventh reason that David gives, and it gets closer to the heart of the Psalms' major theme. God's mercy loving kindness. David says the reason for answering his prayer is that in his mercy, God has already set his love upon him. God has already set this covenant, loyal love upon him. The, the, the word loving kindness is the Hebrew word. It's a very powerful word, chesed, chesed. 
It refers to this covenant, faithful, unconditional love that God has set upon those whom He redeems. It's a covenant relationship. God has entered into, He's established a covenant relationship with David. Our equivalent is the fact that God has made us sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. Adopted children, children of God, entered into the family. And family relationships have family privileges. That's why Jesus says, What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a, son, a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Fourth and finally, the reason why God must answer His request, verse 17, is because you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. This is David's final argument for why God should answer his prayer. God helped David in the past, perhaps even whilst he was praying in the past. And it's easy to forget the answered prayers, the many prayers that God has already answered. Those times when he brought comfort and peace in the midst of turmoil. In fact, if you haven't done so already, may I strongly encourage you to start a prayer journal, documenting the petitions and then, of course, recording as God has answered them favorably. And then when you face new challenges, and many you will face many this year, revisit those pages. Retrace God's faithfulness. Let the memory of His past gracious interventions strengthen your faith and encourage you to once again come before His throne in prayer with confidence. The God who helped and comforted David is the same God that you and I pray to today. And he's the, he's the one who longs to do the same for you. So spend time regularly reflecting upon his past answered prayers and giving him thanks for that, his past faithfulness. And let that fuel you to regularly bow before him in prayer. David had an intimate relationship with Yahweh. He made many requests of God, and as we saw, he also gave reasons as to why God should answer his prayers. And this brings us to the fourth and final key aspect that profoundly shaped David's prayer. David's remembrance of God. David's remembrance of God. In virtually everything, David is appealing to the mercy of God. David knows that God is merciful. And God himself has clearly revealed this to David. David has learned this from God's word. After making and worshiping a golden calf, Moses interceded for the people of Israel that God might not destroy them. And three of his prayers are recorded in Exodus. And I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 33, Genesis Exodus chapter 33, where we see Moses's conversation with God. In Exodus 33 verse 2, God responds by saying that he's not going to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, and he's going to send an angel to lead them. But this was not enough for Moses. To be led by an angel was less than being led by God. He didn't want anything lessening the special relationship that Yahweh had with his people that they had previously enjoyed. And yes, of course, they were sinners, Moses as well as others, and therefore their relationship with God was purely based upon his mercy, not upon what they deserve, which is his wrath. And so Moses was resolved. They must not be led by an angel, but by God. And so he begins to pray. And his first request... He prays that he might know God. He had been with God up in the mountain for 40 days, but still he yearned to know God. And in verse 13 of Exodus 33, he prays, If I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, 
so that I may find favor in your sight. This is a request that we should make often. Help us to know you. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God through faith, upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In the words of David, teach me, O Lord, your ways. Teach me your ways, O Yahweh. Moses' second petition express, expresses his most pressing concern, which has to do with God sending an angel to lead his people. Moses judged it impossible that he should lead the people of Israel without the Lord's very own presence being with him. And so he prays in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. And the Lord heard Moses' request and granted it, verse 17, I will do the very thing that you've asked, for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. All of us in positions of leadership ought to be afraid to take one single step without, without the assurance of God's presence with us. Psalm 127 verse 1, Unless Yahweh builds a house, the laborer labors in vain who builds it. At this point, Moses had achieved what he was most concerned about. God had promised to go with his people, not send the angel in his stead. But Moses wanted more. He wanted to see God's glory. We see in verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. And as God's answer makes clear, this was nothing less than a face-to-face -face encounter with God that he was, he was longing after. He wanted to see Yahweh in all his splendor, not obscured by a cloud or through devices like a burning bush, he wanted to see God in all his glory. In verse 20, God replies that he could not show his face to Moses because no human being can see the face of God and live. But he would reveal his goodness and proclaim his name to Moses by placing Moses in the cleft of a rock, covering the opening with his hand and then causing his goodness to pass by. And the text says in Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7, Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression." And sin. These words unfold the meaning of the name of God. They express His mercy, His mercy toward all who would confess their sin and place their faith in Him, who would come to Him as beggars. Exodus 34, verse 6 is one of the most frequently quoted passages by the Old Testament writers. It's referred to in Nehemiah 9, verse 17, Psalm 103, verse 8. 104 verse 8, Joel 2 verse 13, Jonah 4 verse 2, and that's just a few of the references. It is this very verse that is referenced by David in Psalm 86. In fact, he repeats this twice in Psalm 86. And so please turn back to Psalm 86. David mentions Exodus 34 verse 6 briefly in verse 5 of Psalm 86. You, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And then he cites it extensively in verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. 
David learned that God is a merciful God from Exodus 34 verse 6. He learned it from this great story in God's word. And moreover, he was wise enough to base his prayers upon God's character. And so should we. In fact, we have even more reason to do it because we know how we have received mercy from God through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, through his death. Romans 8 verse 32, He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God didn't spare his own son for us, and he didn't, he gave him up for us, he will not withhold any good thing from us. But how we lay hold of God's grace and mercy, it's through prayer. Prayer is the means by which we lay hold of his grace and mercy. Having a genuine saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Coming before him with heartfelt requests. Motivating our requests with sound arguments, reasons based upon our need, based upon our relationship with him, based upon his past answered prayers, based upon his magnificent character, his perfections, his mercy. A God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Today is the start of our week of focused prayer. And we resume our ministries by devoting the first week to prayer, acknowledging that apart from God, we can do nothing. Affirming His perfections and His promises. Praising Him for His abundant mercy and grace. Thanking Him for who He is and what He has done and what He continues to do in our lives and in our church. Petitioning Him for our many needs. Pleading with Him to teach us His ways and to empower us by His Spirit to carry out His will within this church and within the world. Confessing our sins to Him so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and further matured into the image of Christ. And of course, interceding for one another. So please do stay for the equip class, which will be devoted to a corporate prayer meeting. And that's going to include all these various elements, aspects of prayer that I've just run through. Affirming and acknowledging and petitioning and confessing. Praising, giving thanks. I've been praying for this meeting. And I've been praying for this week. That as we gather each day to pray that God would knit our hearts to one another, that God would further cause us to be more devoted to Yahweh through Christ, Yahweh our master. I've been praying that God would work mightily through this prayer meeting that we're going to have today and through the many prayer meetings throughout this week, that he would answer our prayers favorably. I've been praying for our faith that it would be strengthened as we offer up our prayers in humble dependence upon Him from the heart. I've been praying that God would, through our prayers, bless our efforts as we seek to serve Him and one another, and of course the community in which we live in. I've been praying that God would continue to bless us with the privilege of worshiping Him, serving Him as slaves of the God, the King Most High, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives. So please join us today at 11 a.m. And then, of course, throughout this week, each morning, Monday through Saturday, we'll be meeting at 5.45 through to 6.45. Coffee will be available at 5.30, but we'll start praying at 5.45 each morning. And look, if you can only come at 6 a.m., that's okay. Please just come. And if you have to leave early, if you have to leave at 6.30, that's okay. Come. But we will endeavor to pray each morning for at least an hour together. Attempting to pray for 30 minutes, let alone an hour on your own, is very difficult. I don't know how many of you have successfully been able to achieve that. But praying together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the time goes like this. 
It goes by so fast. And more than that, it is so nourishing for your own soul and so necessary for you and for our church. So please do join us. All the various Bible studies that will resume this week will devote this evening, the, the evenings throughout this week and mornings throughout this week to prayer. It'll be likewise a prayer meeting. And as you'll see from today's corporate prayer meeting at 11 o'clock, the evening, the Bible studies, like this equip class, will include scripture reading. We want to certainly be praying God's will, recalling His character and His mighty works. It'll include singing, which is again a form of prayer. Many of the songs that we sang today were prayers. And then, of course, speaking. But speaking in a group, which means not hogging the conversation, but really having a discussion, like a group discussion, offering short statements that would stimulate other thoughts as you're hearing your brother or sister pray, that you would add on to all of us directing our prayers before the throne of God to whom our prayers are directed. We as individuals and we as a church need to pray so that God might show us mercy. Bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, in awe of your indescribable grace, your rich mercy, your deep well of love, your endless well of love that you have bestowed upon us, we come before you, we bow before you, grateful for the truths that often leave us speechless, that you who did not spare your own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will you not also in Christ graciously give us all things? You indeed orchestrate all things for our good and for your glory. And as we walk in faith, in daily humble dependence upon you, as reflected in a genuine heartfelt prayer life, May our lives be a reflection of your immeasurable love, your gracious character, your great mercy that we see supremely poured out upon the cross as you shed your blood for undeserving sinners like us. We affirm the words of the psalmist in Psalm 84 verse 11. That Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. Bless us today. Bless us this week as we come before you as a church in prayer. This we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.